To listen to memory card episodes early and ad-free, consider supporting the show via Patreon at patreon.com memcard. Hey there, video game fans. I'm Ben Bertoli. I'm Push Dustin. And this is Memory Card. So, Push. Yes. Today, uh, I want to kind of talk about finding connections between media that you love, be that different video games, be that TV shows, movies, and that kind of thing, because my topic is all about a game I found kind of when I went down a rabbit hole of a creator that I'm a big fan of. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give away which creator that is yet, but I was just curious if you have had any similar instances where you played a game or you found out about a game and then realized like, oh, wait, that's that same guy who, you know, made something else that I loved. So I'm actually a huge fanboy of a man named Edmund McMillan. He uh, started out as a Adobe like Flash content creator, like back in the day on Newgrounds. I was really into like his earlier work that, you know, the stuff that he would put out on the portal. You know, eventually he he started working on a game called Meat Boy, mm-hmm. which was pretty popular, pretty su- successful. I think it was also featured in uh, Indie Game the Movie. I remember, like, randomly one day, there was this game called The Binding of Isaac that was just released. And it had his name on it. And, like, I just was like, oh, I'll, I'll try it since, you know, he made it. Right. And that kind of led me down this whole spiral where Binding of Isaac has, like, over overtook my life multiple times. <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing it is probably my most played game ever and i'm not even really that good at it mm. yeah well but but you enjoy it right yeah oh yeah I, I really enjoyed it and like every time i every time i get into this um spiral i just spend hundreds and hundreds of hours into it <laughs> and it's it's never enough well hopefully something will pull you out of the spiral but it's kind of comforting to have those games that you can always go back to, right? Oh, yeah. Like, this game um, originally came out in 2011, mm-hmm. and um, they just released the final, final DLC. It's just, like, insane how much content they've added over the last 10 years. So, did you know that it was the same guy who had made those things earlier? Like, did you follow him the whole way, or was there a point where you kind of fell off and then you realized, oh, wait, that's that same guy? It was kind of more like the latter, like um, because I remember like being on Steam and just like, oh, wait, isn't that the same art style as this other guy that I really like? And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, yeah, it is because <laughs> it's him. <laughs> it's him. And I've easily spent like a total of 600 hours in that game. Wow. Yeah. A lot of the connections that I make with video games, even I would say has to do like voice actors yeah i'm like huge into cartoons you know as a kid and even as an adult and so there's a lot of times when i hear a voice in a game and i'll be like why do i know that voice like who is that Mm. the main one that i hear all the time that i connect back to my childhood is richard horvitz who um a lot of people know as raz from psychonauts and he's also he does he does a ton of voices in uh, ratchet and clank he's a very distinct voice and uh he He's also the voice of uh, Daggett from the Angry Beavers mm-hmm. and uh, Zim from Invader Zim. Oh, okay. So very unique voice. But every time I hear him, I'm like, oh, man, like that's totally, you know, Richard Horvitz. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, <laughs> he's got that kind of like high pitched squeaky voice going on. A lot of times when I don't recognize the voice, I'll look into it. And uh, there's a character in Overwatch um, named Reaper who has like a very deep like when he does his special movie, he's like, die, die, die. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, intense. 
and it turns out um, he's voiced by uh, Keith Ferguson, who is is known for playing this very high pitched, squeaky uh, imaginary friend in the show Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. Oh, okay, the blue ghost. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, his name's just Blue. Yeah, yeah. But it's so funny because, well, uh, the one guy, his voice is not exactly the same, but very similar throughout. Obviously, Keith Ferguson has just like a ridiculous range Mm -hmm. where he can play super serious gunman and funny little blue imaginary friend. All right, well, I'm going to take you down a rabbit hole today, Push, with my findings. So prepare yourself. I, I am. I'm ready. So as you know, and I'm sure lots of other people who listen to the show know, um, you know, I'm big into anime and manga and Mm -hmm. kind of grew up on a steady stream of uh, Dragon Ball Z and Toonami, Cowboy Bebop, all those, all the classics. And Dragon Ball was was a huge one for me, the Dragon Ball series, uh, like I said, Dragon Ball Z. Mm -hmm. And that is the creation of Akira Toriyama. And he is kind of the focus of the show today because I was I was digging into his history with video games when I found a few games that I was like, what? I've never heard of these. <laughs> and they're like kind of prominent games. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be kind of fun if I did a background on him, touched on a few of his more popular series, and then got into this one that I found. Now, I know you're not like the biggest anime manga guy, yeah, but... Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, he's the guy that worked on um, like Dragon Ball Z, right? Right. Yeah, he's the like original creator. And I think he was also well. I don't know if this you can cut this if this spoils it, but I think he was also the the character designer for Dragon Quest. Yes. Yeah. No, that is correct, and we'll talk about that. I mean, that's uh, definitely his biggest claim to fame in the video game world. But uh, we'll start out with just a little background on him. So. Akira Toriyama was born in Nagoya, Japan, Mm -hmm. grew up like a lot of kids uh, watching TV cartoons and uh, reading comics and kind of imitating the style of his favorite characters. He won some kind of a contest, a drawing contest for a picture that he drew of uh, 101 Dalmatians, the Disney movie, and uh, just kind of realized that, you know, oh, maybe this can be a career, maybe... I can make art into something that I do full time. Mm -hmm. Before he actually got into manga, which was, you know, where he started off to gain international fame, he worked at a advertising agency in Nagoya designing posters, which, you know, you could see that, I guess, if you're a good artist, that you're going to do some design work. Yeah. He started submitting uh, what are called one shots to Shonen Jump magazine, which are basically like, here's the pilot episode, you know, here's, here's Mm -hmm. my idea for a comic. And people get like awards and it's like oh like this is the best one and we're going to turn it into a series and while he didn't immediately get a series out of you know these one-shot contests he did start getting recognized and uh, went on to create his very first manga comic serialized comic which was called dr slump which um, a lot of people i don't think know super well some of the characters have made cameos in games and um, i think even the original dragon ball Mm. series had a a cameo from characters but it ran from 1980 to 1984 and it was about this weird scientist who creates he's trying to create like the perfect woman but instead he creates like this perfect little girl who's 
not as perfect as he thinks because she like needs glasses but she's like super powerful and she's a robot who like beats people up and stuff oh okay so it was basically a, like a gag manga full of jokes and goofs and you know like funny situations and it was uh, a little risque in, in in places as some manga is and so i, I don't think a lot of uh, american publishers were really quick to want to pick it up yeah <laughs> Because, you know, it makes it kind of hard to localize. You got to, like, uh, erase things and change dialogue and stuff like that. After Dr. Slump in 1984, Shonen Jump began to serialize his next manga, which was called Dragon Ball. And uh, it became, like, a, a huge, you know, instant hit. I mean, it sold, I want to say, probably close to 200 million uh, graphic novels um, in Japan alone, which is, which is nuts. And uh, obviously, you know, it's what uh, kickstarted, you know, Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball GT. And um, it's considered one of the most influential manga yeah. series of all time based on art style and just based on adventures that he wrote and the pacing and the characters and things like that. We didn't get Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z in America until quite a ways after it was done in Japan. And uh, really, we like started with Dragon Ball Z and then kind of backtracked. They were like, well, this is popular. I guess we should give them the original <laughs> storyline so they can figure it all out. So while Toriyama was working on Dragon Ball in the mid-80s, um, there was a developer that reached out to him called Chunsoft. And they were like, hey, you have a very popular manga and we have this new game that we're coming out with and we think that it would be cool if you design the characters um, for, you know, the box art and the manual, because let's be honest, it's kind of hard to make detailed characters look good on the, you know, the Famicom, the NES, which was what the uh, game was going to come out for. So this was uh, the game that would eventually become Dragon Quest, which you mentioned um, earlier. And even if you don't know what, you know, an RPG is, a role-playing game, this was like a big one. Yeah. And, um, continues to be like one of the biggest rpg series like in the world so he worked on dragon quest um he did the designs for the characters and it was eventually published by enix not to be confused with square enix who is the the company today that puts them out because eventually enix had to combine with square mm -hmm. the game went on to like establish a lot of the classic trends in rpgs and jrpgs and when it came to north america they were like, okay, we need to change this a bit because people didn't know who Toriyama was. Yeah. You know, the original Dragon Quest came out in 1986 and the uh, Western version came out in 1989. Oh, so like three years. Yeah. What do you think they changed the name to? I actually think I know this one. It's, uh, okay. Wasn't uh, Dragon Quest originally called uh, Dragon Warrior in, uh, in the US? That is correct. Good job. I, I, I wrote the um, memory card fact for that, I think the tweet okay <laughs> perfect all right well 100 points to you good job <laughs> <laughs> this is like whose line is it anyway the points don't matter <laughs> yeah so when it came out uh you know those three years later in north america they changed the box art they changed the name um they kind of messed with like the sprites in the game to make them look a little different um less cartoony and uh yeah i mean it still mm -hmm. did decently well and sold decently well and obviously i think after dragon warrior 3 they started to revert the name back to Dragon Quest, and uh, that's what we know it as today. Uh, Dragon Quest XI came out in 2017, and um, I believe Dragon Quest Twelve is already like on the horizon. I, I think they may have just done like a teaser trailer for it, but it's still coming. Yeah, they did a, a short a teaser for it, like a Dragon Quest Day right. or something like that. They had like a 
multiple announcements that day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, 30 years later, Toriyama is still the one who's designing um, most of the main characters. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the people working on the game have kind of uh, adapted his style to make other characters, you know, in line and uh, the world as a whole. But it's pretty impressive that he's uh, still involved 12 plus games later because there's God knows there's a lot of spinoffs as well. Mm-hmm. And then the other big game that he worked on, at least uh, in my mind, would be Chrono Trigger. Oh, yes. Which uh, I'll admit, I've, I've never beaten Chrono Trigger. I think I started it a few times on the DS. And it's, it's definitely one that I would love to have for my Super Nintendo collection. But it's kind of rare. Or I should say it's kind of expensive. Yeah, it's kind of expensive because people who have it don't want to sell it. Right. <laughs> So Chrono Trigger came out in 1995 and was published by Square, who would once again eventually go on to get together with Enix to become Square Enix, as it is today. And that was a game for the Super Nintendo, for those who don't know. And it had three designers that Square dubbed the Dream Team, which was, and here I go pronouncing Japanese names, (laughs) Hironobu Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy, Yuji Horii, creator of Dragon Quest, and mm-hmm. Kira Toriyama, who was, you know, obviously the creator of Dragon Ball. So that was the considered the dream team. And uh, those creators actually show up in the end of the game. If you get a certain ending, you'll go into a room and they're all like kind of dancing around. They have like computers and drawings and stuff. It's pretty cute. You know, they're a little 16 bit. Mm-hmm. Toriyama had more of an influence. Um, he kind of helped out with the story. He designed the game's aesthetic and uh, the characters, the vehicles, the monsters, and the look of each era because uh, Chrono Trigger is a time travel game. That was, you know, the next big thing. Certainly a big yeah. hit. I'm not sure how well it did as far as sales, but I know it's considered by many to be like one of the best video games of all time. It had a sequel. Right, Chrono Cross. Chrono Cross, but also for the um, the Satella view. Right, yeah. And Chrono Trigger eventually was re-released for the PlayStation, and then, as I mentioned, the uh, DS mm-hmm. got its own version um, when it was kind of at like the height of its popularity. There's plenty of ways for people to, to play it out there, and um, there, we're hearing rumors, at least at the time of recording, that there might be a Chrono Cross... HD remake in the works, but we'll see if uh, by the time this episode comes out, if that's been announced, that'll be uh, really exciting for fans of of that series. Yeah, because they've been waiting for so such a long time. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But if they remake that uh, Chrono Cross, you would think that they would, you know, also want to remake Chrono Trigger. But yeah, I guess that remains to be seen. So I was looking into both those games. Um, I I kind of got on a little bit of a Dragon Quest kick there because I really wasn't big into the game, but it was on Game Pass, and I was like, hey, I'll try, you know, Dragon Quest Eleven, and uh, you know, I've put in about fifty hours so far. I'm like maybe halfway through. <laughs> I don't know if that just means the game's really long or I'm just really bad at it. Wow, one interesting episode. We're gonna put things on pause for a moment to briefly explain how you can support Memory Card. If you enjoy our content, you can show your support by leaving positive reviews on your podcasting service of choice. Four or five stars and a few kind words go a long way when it comes to convincing others to give the show a listen. So please do so if you find the time. Spreading the word is also very helpful. If you know anyone who's interested in gaming or history, or both, you should consider sharing memory card with them. Every season we strive to reach a wider audience, and you can help. 
If you're feeling extra supportive, you can head over to patreon.com slash memcard. Every single one of our patrons gets access to early ad-free episodes. Higher tiers include bonus episodes, shoutouts, stickers, and more. We certainly hope you'll check it out and consider becoming one of our lovely patrons. Once again, that's patreon.com slash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. Hey Ben, what's our sticker for the season? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. This season, we have a lovely illustration of Gumbo, the Bull Terrier, wearing a memory card sweatshirt, as drawn by artist Alice Carroll. And it's actually the dog of Jamatar who does the theme for our podcast. Whoa, that's like everything I love. I love dogs, I love sweatshirts, I love Jamatar. That's right, and it's a sticker. Whoa, I can stick it on my phone. (laughs) You can stick it wherever you want, Push. Well, thanks for taking the time to hear us out. Let's get back to the show. Looking into Toriyama's other uh, video game connections, I found this game. It is called Toeball Number One. Any ideas as to what kind of game this is? I have no idea. Not a normal RPG. What's what's your guess, Push? Uh, can you say the name one more one more time? Toeball Number One. It's a completely made up word. T O B A L. So nothing to do with sports. Nope, no sports and no RPG. Uh, it has to be, like, action game, I guess? That's close. All right, it's a fighting game. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Toeball number one is actually the very first game to come to the PlayStation that was made by Squaresoft. This was before any Final Fantasies, anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this in the past, or perhaps it was on the uh, Lost Disk Drive episode. But, you know, there was a point where square was making final fantasy games for nintendo and they were selling you know amazingly well yeah and um nintendo was like well our next big thing is the nintendo 64 and square was like well playstation has approached us and they're doing discs like could you guys do discs because it'd be easier for us to put these huge games on there and nintendo was just like nah sorry (laughs) so (laughs) square kind of jumped ship and was like all right well we're going with sony now and we're going over to daddy discs and this was the very first game that they actually came out with for the PlayStation. In fact, it was the very first game that Square ever made that was on a disc. Mm-hmm. Sony actually worked with Dream Factory, which was the uh, developer of this game. And Dream Factory was actually the creation of a game designer, Seichi Ishii. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I'm, I'm getting that somewhat right. He was actually the designer on uh, past fighting games, like huge groundbreaking series like Virtual Fighter and Tekken. Oh, okay. And uh, he was actually the designer and the director of the first Tekken and uh, Tekken 2. So this guy had like, you know, big... uh, Resume. Big recognition. Yeah, (laughs) he had a big resume. It was easy for him to to get things that he wanted in the gaming world. And he was like, I'm going to start my own company. And we're going to make a fighting game. And everyone was like, yeah. So he kind of like brought his team on board Mm -hmm. said, like, we're going to make the best, coolest fighting game that you've ever seen. And that is where Toeball number one comes from. Now, Toriyama's connection is that obviously they pulled him and said, hey, you've been working on all these cool, you know, Dragon Quest games and uh, Chrono Trigger up until now. And we want you to come up with not only the characters, but the story for this game. We know it's going to be a fighting game, but why are they fighting? And so uh, Toriyama came up with the storyline and this whole like cast of characters, uh, very 
Dragon Ball Z in nature, some of them with, you know, their pointy hair and large muscles. But the big thing about this game, aside from, you know, Toriyama's cool art, mm -hmm. was that it came packaged with a demo disc of a lot of upcoming Square games that people were, like, super excited for. So it actually had a pre-release playable demo of Final Fantasy VII, oh. which was a huge deal. And it had video previews of Final Fantasy Tactics, Bushido Blade, and Saga Frontier, mm -hmm. which were also, like, highly anticipated in Japan. So sales of Tobol number one were, like, astoundingly good <laughs> because everybody... Yeah. Yeah, and I hate to say that it's just because people wanted to get their hands on that demo disc, but... A lot of it was because people wanted to get their hands on that demo disc. Yeah, I, I'm sure people were also interested in, in seeing um, the work that was done by um, Akira. Yeah, and um, it's funny because a lot of the like lore that they've made for this game, the characters and the backgrounds and everything is like only in the instruction manual. Mm -hmm. The game itself does not do a good job of explaining like what's happening in the story. It's just kind of like, these people are fighting. Oh, no. But when they were um, developing it, he basically said, like, well, you know, most of the fighting games we make nowadays go from the arcade to the home console. And so instead of making a game where it's just 1v1 and you're playing against a computer, Ishii decided that he wanted to not only have a tournament mode where you face each other and an arcade mode where you face against computers, but he, w he made this new mode that was called Quest Mode. Mm-hmm you like ran around these labyrinths in total 3d like it, it looks really cool and um you kind of you like jump over pits and you suddenly randomly encounter all these bad guys and then it switches into fighting mode and you have to beat them up basically like an adventure mode for a fighting game oh, okay that's really cool which at the time was like revolutionary like wow okay so there's 30 different dungeon levels and you can kind of like run through and beat things up and there's actually specific like bonus characters that you can unlock but you can only unlock them when you meet them in quest mode which kind of reminds me of the subspace emissary from super smash brothers brawl oh yeah a little bit yeah you run into a new you know opponent and you beat them and you unlock them yeah who knows if uh, if there's any overlap there but so the actual plot of tobol that uh, toriyama helped create was that it takes place in the year 2048 just coming up. Mm -hmm. The uh, fictional planet called Tobol, which is where the name comes from. And uh, there's this like special mineral on Tobol that's called Molmoran. And it's an ore that is like this ultimate energy source. And instead of using their brains to find a way to use it, they're just like, hey, whoever wins this fighting tournament gets, <laughs> gets <it>. control <laughs> of all of it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> obviously whoever can do the best punches yeah. is good at controlling resources. Exactly. It's the planet's 98th tournament. And, and this time the tournament is going to determine who, who gets the rights to this ore. That's pretty much it. So the different characters involved are, you know, the people participating. The main guy is a dude named Chuji who has, you know, like the spiky hair. He kind of looks like uh, Gohan from Dragon Ball Z, if you, if you know who that character is. And then there's all these other, like, you know, funny-looking people. Mm -hmm. There's this really strong, like, Russian woman who just, like, super ripped. There's, like, aliens and, you know, old guys who turn out to be super strong, which is definitely something... I would read off all the names, but I don't think they would, you know, give you any good idea. Except there is a guy whose name is Emperor Udon. 
which is which is great <laughs> that's amazing yeah and um you can unlock obviously uh different characters and the last character that uh, most people probably unlock is this guy named Toribot, or uh, sometimes he's known as Toriyama Robo and he's actually this little character that Toriyama puts in games and in his comics that is supposed to represent him mm-hmm. and it basically looks like a little robot wearing a gas mask oh okay he has shown up in the Toball series, uh, Blue Dragon series, and then I think he shows up in like four or five Dragon Ball Z video games. Not to mention that like he's always like mm-hmm. in the background of certain shots in the manga series of Dragon Ball and Dr. Slump and stuff. In fact, as I was you know researching this episode, I got a, a manga collection in that I'm giving to my friend for Christmas because, you know, we're recording this in December. And um, on the inside cover, it's just a pattern of the Tory bot, oh. like over and over. And I was like, I know who that is now. <laughs> I get it. Like, I get that reference. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so that was exciting for me that I made that connection. But uh, Tobal was released in Japan in 1996 in August. And then uh, a month later in North America, also 1996. And then it made its way to uh, PAL territories in 97, early 97. So everybody got this game, and as I was researching, I found numerous, you know, magazines and people talking about the game and saying, like, well, this is really cool, you know, I really enjoyed this. It was very much like Tekken, where you could kind of move around mm-hmm. the uh, fighting arena, like you could kind of roll, like, 360, yeah. and that was a big, a big part of it. So while the first game came to, um, you know, Europe and uh, the Americas, the sequel, Tobal 2, only came out in Japan. And it sold uh, substantially worse because it did not come with a demo. You know, amazing demo <laughs> disc yeah, of upcoming games that everybody wanted to play. And it's funny because I read some interviews with the people who made it and there was all sorts of reasons why they thought, you know, it wasn't a good idea to push it outside of Japan and why it didn't sell so well. And mainly it was like, well, no demo disc. So, mm. Tobal 2 was released in 1997, so not too long um, after the original, but it was after Final Fantasy VII had dropped and uh, Bushido Blade. So, you know, people were like, whoa, Square's killing it. You know, they have all these great games. And everyone knows that Super Smash Bros. Ultimate has, like, you know, no pun intended, the ultimate roster of fighting game, you know, characters probably in history. And there's a lot of them. Uh, how many? How many are we up to now? Push is it's got to be like around like ninety, right? It's uh eighty-two. Um, if you don't include the echoes, eighty-two. Yeah, with Echo Fighters, like it's around ninety, which is a lot. Yeah. But Tobal Two actually holds the Guinness World Record for the most playable characters in a fighting game. They have two hundred playable characters that you can choose from, which is uh. Uh, greatly up from their original, you know, uh, 12 or so in the first game. <laughs> However, I was, uh, I was looking into it, and uh, really there's only 15 core characters that you can play as, but there is that quest mode comes back in Tobal 2, and now any enemy that you fight in the quest mode, yeah. you can play as in like tournament mode. Like It unlocks them, and that's where the 200 characters comes from. Oh, okay. A lot of them are just like reskins. It's like, oh, you fought a rat. Like Now you can play as a rat. Oh, you fought the blue rat. Now you can play as a blue rat. It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so that's kind of its claim to fame. Um, it's very similar to the original Toe Ball. 
I believe the they added in some magic attacks so people could do some more like long range kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, Tobol 2 was actually released the same day as the uh, dual analog controller in Japan. The you know the first PlayStation controller that had the sticks yeah. on the bottom, and so it is technically noted as the first game that's compatible mm-hmm. with that controller. Oh wow! So that's a fun little claim to fame. Hey, Tobol 2, why does your mom let you have two claims to fame? <laughs> oh, man, this whole series has, like, way more... I'm going to talk about it here at the end, but, like, geez, it's got so much, like, weirdly, like, important things that people probably, mm-hmm. like, have no idea about. But according to Square, um, the game wasn't localized because Tobol number one, like, just didn't sell very well outside of Japan. Um, and so they were like, well, you know, if the first one didn't do so well, we probably shouldn't sell it outside of Japan. But there have been some Square representatives later on that claimed that, like, it was literally impossible because the PlayStation's limited memory prevented um, the English dialogue from fitting in the game. Ah. Uh. Because, like, the quest mode was so huge and it's like, well, we had to change all this uh, text and it just, like, wouldn't fit. But there's been people who have actually gone in and uh done like fan translations yep. and they were like they were able to do it so yeah the last uh interesting thing about tobal 2 is that according to ken kuderagi um there was like a performance analyzer mm-hmm. for the playstation the original playstation and it would kind of uh, tell you like how much of the playstation's potential a piece of software was using and the majority of games like did not go beyond 50% of the system's like potential. Yeah, that makes sense cuz like you don't want your game to crash. Right. But Tobal 2 was one of the only games that it used 90% of the you know, the PlayStation's potential. Jesus. And that's like crazy. This whole article was not about Tobal 2. It was just like, "Hey, like, you know, how's PlayStation doing?" And he was just like bragging like Tobal 2, you know, uses the majority of the power that we have and we love that <laughs> mm-hmm. but toriyama um after designing these characters obviously he still works on dragon ball z games um i believe he created a special character for dragon ball fighters when that came out a new android character and uh, you know every now and then for dragon ball games and uh, jump force games which are like shonen jump you know combination games he will help design a new character but aside from that, really, he's only worked on one series, which was called Blue Dragon, yeah. um, which I don't think did as well as uh, people uh, had hoped it would do. But uh, yeah, so Tobal was just kind of that rabbit hole that I fell down. And uh, here, let me, let me recap some of these amazing accomplishments that it had. It was the first fighting game ever published by Square. It was the first disc-based game published by Square. The first PlayStation game published by Square. First game developed by Dream Factory. First fighting game with original characters by Toriyama. Revolutionary quest mode. Most fighters ever in a game. First game compatible with the DualShock controller. And the only PlayStation game at the time to use 90% of the hardware power. It's, uh, it's a bigger deal than you'd think. And I, I can't believe it took this long for me to find out about it. It seems kind of like a game that I would have noticed back in the day. Maybe just because of the art style. Yeah, it looks, uh, I'm watching like some gameplay of it right now and it looks pretty cool. Yeah, it's like surprisingly smooth. Yeah, very Tekken like, which, uh, which is awesome. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned this before, but the original game, um, actually ran at 60 frames per second. Yeah. And, uh, that's mostly because 
they did like this polygon thing where they didn't really focus on textures. It was just kind of like blocky, bold colors, but it, it really works and it looks nice. Yeah, it looks very smooth. So don't forget kids who are listening to this show. You don't always have to keep looking forward to big games. You need to also remember to look backwards to old games because they can surprise you just as much. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Our intro and outro music was crafted by talented chiptune composer Jamatar. You can find more of his banging beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting Jamatar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast or would like to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow. Or you can visit our website, MemoryCardShow.com. If you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at SuperBenTendo and at PushDustin, respectively. Have you considered supporting Memory Card on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we're supported by quite a few awesome people, all of which get access to early, ad-free episodes. These people include Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Harrison, Jorge Bajija, Manuel Vitella, Shala, Sandra L., Brandon Hanabarger, Sean Marafini, and Nick Callis. All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. We'll be back really soon with some more gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you've enjoyed the show. We'll see you soon.